In the book, The Fire of Your Life, Maggie Ross recounts the story of Emma. Emma was a survivor of the Holocaust in Europe, who regularly at four o'clock in the afternoon each day stood outside a Manhattan church and screamed insults at Jesus Christ. Finally, the pastor, Bishop C. Kilmer Myers, went outside and went up to Emma and he said to her, why don't you go inside and tell him? So she did. She disappeared into the church. An hour went by, and the bishop, worried, decided to look in on her. He found Emma prostrate before the cross, absolutely still. Reaching down, he touched her shoulder. She looked up with, her tear, with tears in her eyes and said quietly, After all, he was a Jew too. Yes, Jesus was a Jew. Not only that, but Jesus is our perfect priest who meets our personal needs. He suffered so he could understand our sufferings. He hurt so he could know how you hurt. That's the argument of Hebrews chapter 5 where we pick up in our study this morning. Jesus Christ is the perfect high priest for all nations, not just Jews, because he alone is qualified to meet our spiritual needs by virtue of his suffering for us. The author of Hebrews begins this whole argument, which is going to flow through the next chapters of of Hebrews. He begins his argument here with a comparison between the high priesthood of Jesus and the high priesthood of Aaron and, the descend- and his descendants in Israel. So in verses 1 through 4, the role of the priest, first of all, was to care for his people. The role of the priest was to care for his people. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weakness, literally clothed with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins, as for the people, so also for himself." And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself. So you can see that he is drawing the comparison. First he sets it up. This is the way the priests were called and served in the Old Testament, and then he's going to compare that to Jesus Christ. And there are three qualifications then to be high priest in Israel in these verses. Every high priest was appointed on behalf of men as a man. He had to be a human. He had to be a man. He was appointed on behalf of other humans, however, in things pertaining to God. In other words, every high priest was, first of all, appointed to represent sinners. The job of a priest was to represent men and women before God, 
through the sacrificial system that God had instituted in the Old Testament. We humans are sinful, and God is holy. That is simple reality. So we need a way to be right with God. And under the Mosaic Law, God instituted a series of sacrifices that were performed by the priests to make atonement for the sins of the people. So the job of the priest, first of all, was to represent sinners before a holy God. Now the Old Testament law set up two kinds of sacrifices. There were voluntary sacrifices and there were mandatory sacrifices. The voluntary sacrifices were those done simply because a person wanted to express his or her love to God in worship. They were voluntary by offering gifts to the Lord in worship. The mandatory sacrifices were sacrifices that were required as payment for sin committed by the people. So our author says, the high priest in the Old Testament represented sinners in both ways. With the gifts, those were the voluntary offerings that they would bring in worship to God. And with the sacrifices, those were the mandatory substitutes for sin. Each sacrifice was a substitute for the one doing the sacrificing, for the offerer. The whole point of the sacrificial system was that it was substitutionary. So that bull, or that lamb, or that goat became the substitute, if I was living then, became my substitute as it was offered in sacrifice to God in payment for my sin to a holy God. Now, all of those sacrifices in the Old Testament, the author of Hebrews is going to develop this argument later in the book of Hebrews, he will make it very plain, but all of those sacrifices were shadows or symbols or pictures of the ultimate sacrifice, which was Jesus Christ, yet to come to them. The author of Hebrews is setting the stage for that whole argument that he will come bring to a head and bring to culmination in Hebrews chapter 10. The sacrifices then were the Old Testament way of representing sinners to God until Christ would come and pay the ultimate sacrifice on the cross and become our perfect high priest. So the cross is the perfect blood atonement for the sin of all mankind. In the Old Testament, the priest then, first of all, had to be appointed by God to represent sinners to God or before God through the sacrificial system. That was the first qualification. Secondly, he had to be sympathetic to the needs of the people. Look at verses 2 and 3. The high priest can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset, clothed with weakness, and because of it he is obligated to offer sacrifice for sins as for the people, so also for himself. Now the word translated in the Greek here, deal gently, was a word that literally meant to possess middle passions or middle emotions, to have emotions in the middle, to be balanced emotionally in other words so that the priest was neither to be overly emotionally involved with the, the, the failures and struggles of the people, or too distant from them so that he couldn't understand what they were going through. 
The priest was to be in the middle emotionally as he cared for the people. A high priest who was too detached emotionally would be too aloof, too distant to help people who are going through struggles. But a high priest who was overly involved emotionally was no help either. If he felt the problem so intensely that he took everyone's hurts upon himself, then he's overwhelmed and not able to care for their needs and offer the solutions that are needed. Or he he might become overly involved and become angry, you know, and, and come down hard and judgmentally and critically on the people. And that wasn't good either. So a good high priest was balanced emotionally. He was sympathetic, he, but he could still speak the truth to them. He could offer love and truth in a balanced way. He could deal gently and tenderly, but truthfully, with the needs of the people. So the high priest then could offer sympathy to others in their needs. That was his qualification. He had to be able to do that. But he could do that, the author of Hebrews says, because he was blanketed with weakness himself. He was a human. He struggled. He failed. He sinned. He he had ups and downs. He had all of the normal things. So he was blanketed with weakness himself. Therefore, he could offer that help to others who also were going through their struggles. And the same, of course, is true for us today. We are all flawed people, right? We are all sinful people. We all have our struggles. We have our ups and we have our downs. We have our strengths. We have our weaknesses, both physically, emotionally, spiritually. So good spiritual leaders are those who can find the right balance between letting their emotions take over in critical situations and becoming judgmental or angry or becoming overwhelmed, but also avoid becoming too distant and uncaring because the job of the priest was to care for the needs of the people. The job of spiritual leaders to care for the needs of the people in a balanced way. And we need that balance to care for the needs of others. We need sympathy in our relationships with one another. So the Old Testament priest was to offer these sacrifices sympathetically because they are, they are the solution for sin. But he was also supposed to offer the sacrifices, did you notice, for those who were ignorant and misguided. The translation that I read uh, translates it that way. The sympathy was extended toward those who didn't know better or those who wandered away, literally. They kind of slid away from the right path. And so you offer that kind of tender, sympathetic, loving truth to bring those people back. The sympathy of the high priest, however, was offered to those people. It was not to be offered to those who willfully, blatantly, and defiantly stood against God. That's a different thing. Rebelling against God is something different. In fact, the high priest was not to offer sacrifices at all 
for the defiant or deliberate sinners who rebelled against God's law. Numbers 15.28, the priest is to make atonement before the Lord for the one who erred by sinning unintentionally. He wandered or he was ignorant or he got caught up and he fails, he sins. And when atonement has been made for him, he will be forgiven. But anyone, 1530 of Numbers, but anyone who sins defiantly, whether native-born or alien, blasphemes the Lord, and that person must be cut off from his people. There is no sacrifice for that kind of sin in the Old Testament. You see, God took sin seriously, but he took sin graciously. There was a solution for sin, and that solution was to be offered in loving, truthful grace by someone who cared about others, the priest. God provided a way out, a solution for sin, knowing that all are sinners and need a Savior. So God wanted a high priest who would sympathize with sinners, knowing that they needed salvation too. He could represent God's truth balanced with love. He could offer hope to those who were not defiant against God. For what can you do with that person except pray that God would melt their heart? The high priest was appointed then to represent sinners. He was to be sympathetic to the needs of people. And thirdly, he was qualified by his calling. The Old Testament priest was called by God to do the job, beginning with Aaron. And he he had to first offer sacrifices for his own sins, didn't he? And then he offered sacrifices for the sins of others. But it was because he was called of God to do the job. The high priesthood was a calling, not a career. He didn't submit a resume to get this job. He was qualified not by his accomplishments, but by his call from God. And that was never more evident, of course, than in the case of Aaron himself, who was, as we well know from the Old Testament, a weak and sinful man, right? He was a very flawed person whom God called and said, you're to be my high priest. The Israelite high priests were flawed humans who represented other flawed humans before a holy God. They knew what it was like to live in a sinful world. They knew what it was like to suffer in this world. So, that is the background then for his argument. The role of the priest was to care for his people, but the goal of Christ is to care for us. As our high priest, he's going to make the comparison now. Verse 5 Hebrews 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. But he who said to him, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Just as he says also in another passage, Thou art a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety or his reverence, his surrender to God. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Mary Louise Starkey has a tough job. 
She's trying to turn ordinary people like you and me into servants. The current economic climate in the last uh, decade or two has fueled the need for servants. The number of American households worth $10 million or more has quadrupled. The newly rich want help managing their large homes and their busy lifestyles. They need servants. So servants apply to Mary Starkey's International Institute for Household Management in Denver, Colorado to get their training. With household managers earning between $60,000 to $120,000 a year, applications are at an all-time high. Those enrolled in the eight-week program, $7,200 to go through the program, devote themselves, of course, to mastering things like running a large household, dealing with outside vendors, managing household staff, learning table manners, cooking classes, how to set a formal dinner table, um, ironing table linens so that they're crisp and perfect for their wealthy owners. Well, the most difficult aspect of servanthood is not learning those tasks. It's becoming a servant. (laughs) It's the self-denial servant aspect that is the toughest to teach. A consulting beautician at the school recently told an attractive young female student to trim her long blonde hair, lose the showing earrings, lay off the, the lip liner, because her good looks were drawing attention away from her employers. She was a servant. She didn't like it. Servants are not to draw attention to themselves. They are there to serve the needs of others. That's the whole point of the school that they're enrolling in. Well... Hebrews 5 tells us that Jesus Christ enrolled in a school too. It was the school of servanthood. The school of humanity. And we're told in this verse that Jesus Christ had to learn obedience. God has to learn something? God had to learn obedience. I'm not sure I fully understand the depths of that. No, I'm sure I don't fully understand the depths of that. But the Lord of the universe had to learn to be a servant of men and women if he was going to be qualified to be our high priest. Isn't that amazing? Jesus had to become one of us if he was going to care for us. And that was something he had to learn to do. There are three qualifications in these verses that mirror the qualifications of the Old Testament priest with important changes because, of course, Jesus Christ never had to perform sacrifices for his own sins. First, Jesus was, though, chosen to represent sinners. Christ did not glorify himself, the text says, by choosing this job for himself. The Son of God didn't say in heaven, I want to be the high priest. He did not 
choose to glorify himself in this way. And the author of Hebrews teaches us that he was chosen for that task by God the Father. The author of Hebrews quotes two very familiar Old Testament passages to make his argument. First of all is Psalm chapter 2 and verse 7, where, he, where we read the first quote, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Now we've already seen this used in Hebrews earlier in his argument. The Bible, I'll repeat again, is not teaching that God gave birth to a son in any literal way. The expression is a figure of speech for the appointment of Christ as the Son of God. Psalm 2 is what can be called an enthronement psalm because it was about the establishment of the Son as King. So God presented His Son as the Son at His enthronement to be King. And we talked about that when we dealt with it earlier in the book of Hebrews. The begetting of a son is the appointing of that son to be king. The choosing of that son, the presenting of that son as king. Now that is combined in his argument here with another enthronement psalm, and that is Psalm 110, where the second quote comes from. In Psalm 110 we read, Thou art a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The king is then appointed as a priest. But he cannot be a priest after the order of Aaron. Why? Because in the Old Testament, the Levites were priests. And those of the tribe of Judah could be kings. But the two did not cross over. There was no such thing as a king-priest in Israel. And yet Jesus we've already seen, was appointed as king. Now he will be designated or appointed as high priest. Same person. So because he cannot be after the order of Aaron, he's from the tribe of Judah and the lineage of David, for example, God appointed him as priest after the order of Melchizedek, not after the order of Aaron in the Old Testament. Now, we'll say much more later in our study about Melchizedek. But for now, we simply need to know that Melchizedek in the Old Testament was king of of Salem, which later became Jerusalem when David conquered it, and priest of Salem. He was a king-priest of Jerusalem. And when David conquers Jerusalem, he takes over and becomes heir to the king-priest lineage of Melchizedek in the Old Testament. So the greater son of David, the son of God, Jesus Christ, could now be both a king and a priest after the order of Melchizedek. It's a very carefully worded argument that he is going to develop in the book of Hebrews regarding that. But the point here for our study this morning is that Jesus was chosen to represent sinners as the king-priest after the order of Melchizedek. Secondly, Jesus is also empathetic to our needs. The Old Testament high priest was to be sympathetic. He was, to be, he was to feel in a balanced way our needs. He was to deal gently with us as one who understood our needs because he had to sacrifice for his own sins as well. 
Well, Jesus Christ feels our pain because he suffered as a human on earth and knows what it means to suffer as we suffer. So he can be empathetic with our struggles. He can empathize with us when we cry out to God for answers because he too cried out to the Father for answers as he suffered on this earth. And the author of Hebrews points to Christ's experience in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he died on the cross. In the days of his flesh, verse 7, he offered up both, this is Christ, offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Jesus Christ, the night before he died on the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane, he pleaded with God the Father. He cried out to God. Let this cup pass from me. Isn't there another way, Father? He prayed, it says, with loud shouting and tears and crying to the Father. Let this cup pass from me. But Jesus also submitted himself reverently to the Father's plan when he said, Not my will, but thine be done. That night in the garden. Notice that Jesus prayed to the one who is able to save him from death. Right? The Father could have saved him from death. And yet, Jesus still died. He offered his life as a sacrifice. He was heard because of his reverence toward God. So God, who is able to save him from death, heard his prayers that night. The Father heard his prayers to be saved from death, even as he voluntarily surrendered to the death he didn't want to die. That's the garden. Now here is a very deep lesson in the theology of suffering. All right? It's not a topic we like. But there's a deep lesson in the theology of suffering here for all of us. In what sense was Jesus heard as he prayed even though God did not save him from death? You get it? In what sense was he heard, even as he prayed, not not this way, God, some other way, Father. There's got to be some other way. Let it pass from me. In what sense was he heard, even though he still died? It's very important to understand that God hearing us is not the same thing as God doing what we want him to do for us. That's vital to the whole theology of suffering in the New Testament. God hears us because of our willingness to surrender by faith to him and to his will. He hears us. We have a relationship with him where he hears us even if he doesn't do what we want him to do. Think of the father's heart broken by the tears of his own son, pleading, another way, God. And yet there isn't another way. 
So God still hears us, even if he doesn't do what we want to do. It is our surrender by faith to him and his plan that is the basis for that hearing. It is our relationship. Now, for Jesus Christ, in this way it says, he became qualified to be our perfect high priest. He became empathetic to our needs because he suffered the same struggle that you and I suffer. Why, God? Ever prayed that way? Why, God? Can't you let this pass from me? Isn't there another way, God? Why do I got to go through this, God? Can't there be another solution, God? What have you got me in, God? Jesus prayed all of that. These are our cries, even as we surrender to God's will for our lives. They were Christ's cries, true, even as he surrendered to God's will for his life. Jesus knows then exactly how we feel when we pray those kinds of prayers, because he felt that way, too. Amy Carmichael, missionary to India, suffered in so many ways and wrote uh, so many excellent works, wrote these words, I have noticed that when one who has not suffered draws near to one in pain, there is rarely much power to help. I have wondered if it can be the same in the sphere of prayer. Does pain accepted and endured give some quality that would otherwise be lacking in prayer? What if every stroke of pain or hour of weariness or loneliness or any other trial of flesh or spirit could carry us a pulse beat nearer some other life, some life for which the ministry of prayer is needed? Would it not be worthwhile to suffer? 10,000 times yes. And surely it must be so, for the further we are drawn into the fellowship of Calvary with our dear Lord, the more tender we are toward others. God never wastes his children's pain. Get that. God never wastes his children's pain. How does God develop empathy in us for the needs of others so that we pray with passion for those people. How does he do that? Except through suffering. How would the Lord of the universe learn, learn to feel with us except through suffering? You know, We know from the New Testament that Jesus Christ is in heaven today, interceding, praying for you and for me. And he does so, we know from this passage, with the power of one who feels that same pain. So Jesus Christ is qualified by suffering. The Old Testament Aaronic priest was chosen, qualified by his call, but Jesus Christ is qualified by his suffering.
Jesus was the eternal Son of God. He was fully God. But as all that God is, the the Lord of this universe, He still had to learn obedience. He had to learn servanthood. And the learning was not academic. It was not intellectual. The learning was experiential. He had to experience it. If he was truly to be able to represent us in our pain before God, then he must learn to obey God through the process of pain. Now, I don't know why, but the process of pain and suffering is one of God's greatest tools for teaching us. Pain purifies Pain teaches what nothing else in life could possibly teach. The school of suffering is the school of life. So Jesus had to enroll in the school of suffering to know what we experience in life. Now we are told in this verse that Jesus not only enrolled in the school of suffering, but what? He graduated from the school of suffering. With honors, by the way, summa cum laude. He graduated. He, having been made perfect, the text says. And the the phrase that says having been made perfect means to complete, to finish. It's not that Jesus was imperfect in the sense of he had flaws. It was he was incomplete as a high priest inadequate to be our high priest until he enrolled in the school of suffering and graduated from that school of suffering or school of humanity. Once he graduated from the school of humanity, he was complete, and the verse says he became the source or the cause of our eternal salvation. And then God named him as high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Upon his ascension then, his resurrection and his ascension, he is designated. He is presented now. He is the high priest. For he has gone through that school and graduated. Christ's earthly life then qualified him to be our perfect high priest. He was qualified by suffering to be our priest. One pastor tells about a letter he received from a young mother named Jan in his church. She had come to the end of herself in a hospital room one night. Felt totally alone, abandoned. Her husband and children, they had gone home for the night. The doctors and nurses had done all they could. She was in pain. She was hurting. She was lonely. She had come into the hospital on an emergency basis, but really it was simply the culmination of years and years of being sick. And now she was back in the hospital once again. And she wrote, I sat in the bathroom. It was the middle of the night. No people, no miracle medicine, no strength left. I was too tired to fight. I sat there, four walls surrounding me, and a bleak, monotonous bleep from my battery-operated IV filled the silence. I couldn't stop the sound of that miserable machine any more than I could control my own miserable life. So I sat there, dull, miserable, in pain, with no hope. It was while I was there that I finally did hear something else. 
I didn't hear it with my ears, but I did in my spirit. I heard someone crying. And I immediately knew that it was Jesus crying for me. I was shocked, totally surprised. I didn't think he would do that for me. Slowly, I got up and shuffled back to bed. My IV was still bleeping in my ears. Life was the same, but different entirely. I believe that Jesus at that time made intercession to the Father for me. When there was absolutely no one else that, could, that would help me, he cried for me. He cried for me, and I did recover. Thank you, Jesus. Have you ever sensed Jesus crying for you? He does. He cries for every one of us because he is our perfect high priest and he's been there and he knows what it feels like. Author and speaker Jill Briscoe recalls that in Croatia, She was asked to speak a number of years ago at a church gathering for about 200 newly arrived refugees. Now, refugees from this area are almost totally women because the men are either dead or they're fighting, or at that time they were fighting or dead. This group of Muslims and Serbs had fled to a seminary on the border of a battered Croatian town. The town was still in danger of sniper fire and bombs, but the church had escaped because there were a series of tall apartment buildings in between the church and where the firing was coming from outside of the city. And so the church had become the refugee center. Even though they tried to lob bombs over those, they couldn't quite hit the church. So it became the gathering point. They uh, worked all day visiting, feeding, caring for all of these refugee women, mostly women and children. At night, a service was then held in this huge old church. And Jill Briscoe was asked to speak at that church service. She, she said she, was, she felt totally inadequate. <laughs> what do you tell people like this? Totally inadequate. So she put her notes away, the things that she had planned to speak because she was so overwhelmed by their pain and their suffering. And she prayed to the Lord, just give me something to say. So she's told them about Jesus, who as a baby became a refugee. He was hunted by soldiers and his parents had to flee to Egypt, the Christmas story leaving everything behind them. She continued telling them about Jesus' life, and when she got to the cross, she said he hung there naked, not like pictures tell you. And they all knew what that meant. Some of them had been stripped naked. Some of these women had been stripped naked, had been tortured. They knew it wasn't like the pictures say. At the end of the message, she said, all these things have happened to you, You are homeless. You have had to flee. You have suffered unjustly. But you didn't have a choice. He had a choice. He knew all this would happen to him. But he still came for you. 
And then she told them why Jesus came for them. She said, many in that crowd simply fell to their knees. These Muslim women put their hands up and started crying. Joe Briscoe said, he's the only one who really understands. How can I possibly understand what you are going through? But he can. This is what people did to him. He's the suffering God. You can give your pain to him. You can give your pain to him. Father, in the comforts of our culture, it's easy to deny pain, to ignore it, to put it aside until... until it infiltrates so far into our lives that there's no ignoring it anymore. And then we really need you. And Lord Jesus, we really need you to be our friend, our priest, our caregiver as we go through those times of struggle. Thank you, Lord, that you know what it is like to suffer and that we can come running to you because you know and you feel and you understand and we can give our pain to you. Take it today in Jesus' name, your name, amen.